0: This is Dennis Monday. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. If you go to YouTube, uh, just search Spirit Matters Talk. Matters is plural, uh, and uh, you'll find us. We have about 300 shows in our archives. Uh, I want to thank those people that have contributed to uh, help keep us on the air. If you'd like to contribute to give us support, please go to spiritmatterstalk.com. It'll tell you how to do it. And if you can, please subscribe. It costs nothing. Just click where it says subscribe and we will greatly appreciate that. Uh, Tremendous guest today. Very excited about Stephen G. Post. He is the founding director of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love and the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care and Bioethics at Stony Brook University University. School of Medicine in New York. He is a best-selling author. He's the author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People. Uh, He has recently authored, uh, God and Love on Route 80. And uh, he has a new book since then coming out that we'll also be discussing today. So thank you so very much, Stephen, for taking the time to come on with us today.
1: Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, Dennis and Philip as well. Uh,
2: Stephen. Dr. Post, um, perhaps you could give us a bit of your background, what brought you to the work you do, and uh, especially the spiritual dimension, since that's our focus here at Spirit Matters. Um, Why are you on a program about spirituality, given your distinguished uh, career in academia and medicine? I have always been
1: shaped. By an early life spiritual experience, uh, an experience of remarkable synchronicity that would fall into the category, well, Dashi would speak of one mind. Uh, I was a boy up in a prep school in New Hampshire, St. Paul's, an Episcopal outfit. Um, I was a very interested in spiritual history and Uh, spiritual classics, even at the age of 14 or 15. I never went to the hockey games, but I spent a lot of time walking through the beautiful woods with the book in hand, very pathetically. Um, And when I was uh, 15, I had a recurring dream. Uh, It would come early in the morning, kind of between wake and sleep, and um, it was brief. Uh, I'd never had a recurring dream before. I didn't know what to think of it but I, I saw a road to the West. The road was very misty, I couldn't see far on it. Um, I looked to my left and I thought I saw a young man about to jump off a ledge. Then the face of a woman, an angelic type woman, came into my view and she said, if you save him, you too shall live. Mm-hmm. And I then noticed, saw that the mist evaporated and it was a, a brighter blue sky. And uh, I told my friends in sacred studies class about this, uh, you know, people like Charlie Scribner and Ned Perkins and all these kinds of folks up there. And we talked about it. I even went to Yale Div School and in a class on adolescent spirituality, with Jim Didis, who was a Jungian. Uh, because my teacher there, Rod Wells, had been to Yale Dib School, and I talked about this this dream, and the students, there are about 20 of them, they were masters of divinity students, they asked me what it meant. I said, well, we all read Emerson's Oversoul up there in New Hampshire, but I think I'm the only one who actually believes that there is this kind of Oversoul, this sort of universal mind that we all participate in. And uh, so that was really kind of phenomenal. They said, did did the the dream make you do anything? Well, I said, I did something that no St. Paul's kid has ever done. I applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so that was that. And then fast forward two years, I'm actually headed for Swarthmore. I'm home for the week, for the summer. I've got a job uh, in the Bronx tutoring. I like to tutor a lot. I tutor French Canadians in New Hampshire. Uh, and um, uh, my father and mother completely resisted this. They put their foot down. They said, it's too dangerous for you to do that. So we argued for a few days. And my dad was the president of a department store, you may remember, on Fifth Avenue called W and J Sloan. It was a <laughs> furniture store um, since gone under. Uh, And he said, your mother doesn't want you to do this. I don't want you to do this, so you can't do it. And if you insist on this, we're not going to help you out with college. So uh, this got a little bit acrimonious, more than a little bit. And I said, okay, I won't take this job, but what do you have for me? What am I gonna do? And my dad, who knew all the lampshade and and furniture manufacturers around greater New York said, I can get you a job at Bill de Bono's lampshade factory in Patchogue on the south. (laughs) (laughs) And so I drove my dad's very secondhand gray Mercedes 190 to Pat on for two weeks, worked on a line cutting cardboard for these shades between two very large Italian women. There was no air conditioning. And after two weeks with a copy of Siddhartha in my pocket, <laughs> I drove that Mercedes out to West Hampton Beach. And I met with some of my friends out there who had been at the same at St. Paul's with me. And about 11 at night, I said, you know, I'm going west, I'm following the dream. I knew that the road in the dream was headed to the west. That was my intuition. So I drove that Mercedes, I drove it through the Midtown Tunnel, I drove over the George Washington Bridge for the first time in my life. (laughs) And the first sign I saw that said west was Route 80 West. So I went on Route 80 West. And I drove through, I drove through the water gap, I drove through Pennsylvania. I had about 50 bucks in my pocket. I was 17 at the time, and uh, um, I was thinking to salvage my reputation. I was going to do a U-turn across the midway and get back home before I was out of gas. And lo and behold, just as I was about to do that, the generator broke. You know, generators, cars had generators back then. Most of them don't anymore. And when that happened, everything was dead instantaneously. Every light, uh, the engine, everything. So I managed to get over on the right-hand side, and you know I'd been thinking about um, alchemy and and such uh, traditions, and I wondered, is this a sign for me to go forward? Because I was just about gonna do my U-turn, but something was pushing me forward. So I took a piece of paper. This is infamous, this is a confession, okay? I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment, and I wrote a note that became famous in my family I mean, my brother Henry Post, who co-founded uh, um, uh, the, the New York Magazine and others would, would tell you all about this. Um, it said, to the Pennsylvania State Police, this is at the Lewisburg exit, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655 from his son who no longer works in the lampshade factory
0: that was <laughs> sure. bad I, I, let me let me ask i mean i have to think that this is the basis of your book god and love uh, on route 80 and by the way in 1971 50 years ago i did that same ride from uh, i did it from uh, new jersey up by the george washington bridge all the way to san francisco oh me. you did yeah because if you're
1: in frisco there are signs that say Route 80 East in downtown yeah. San Francisco. So absolutely. So, so what happened was I, I, I had my classical guitar. I played a lot of Granados and Villalobos and I had 50 bucks in my wallet and a couple of spare pieces of clothing um, and my Siddhartha book. And I put my thumb out and I won't go into the details, but I made my way all the way uh, to San Francisco. Okay, following up on Dennis. Did your father get the car? Okay so, my, okay. so I called my mother. Uh, I, I, was, I was riding in a van full of hippies at that point who I'd met in Chicago. And they had convinced me that I should call my mom and tell her I was alive. So I called my mom Collect from Lincoln, Nebraska, from a side, uh, you know, from, from, a, from a telephone booth. And, um, and my mom said, oh, Stevie, you're alive. We thought you were dead. Now we can call up the Pinkertons. <laughs> detectives. And I said to my mother, again, this is really bratty. I said, Mom, you should have let me take that job. Um, by the way, you don't need to call the Pinkertons. Didn't you get my note? Uh, and, and so we had a conversation and, and she recognized that maybe they should have given me a little more space. But I went out to France, San Francisco. I spent the summer on Chenery Street in the Mission District with my cousin, George Lamont who had been in Vietnam for two tours of duty. Really great guy. And um, I played Hispanic music in, um, uh, in restaurants uh, and, and, and loved it. And I had no intention of going to college at that point, but I drew a really lousy number in the draft. Um, I, I, um, I called Reed College and I said, I know you let me in, but I, I turned you down. Now I really need a place because I don't wanna go over there and do the things people had to do. So they let me in. And um, early September, I'm in front of the, the Nichiren Shosho Buddhist temple because I've been chanting Nam-yoho-renge-kyo that summer uh, with beads and felt beyond time and place when I did so. And I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, so I was down in front of the temple, and market, with an old man named Gus, with George, with some friends. And they gave me a gohonzon, which is a Japanese Buddhist scroll. It's got some nice symbols on it. you know, One mind, one heart, uh, infinite uh, truth, things like that. And um, so I had my zone, put it in my backpack and I took the bus from Market Street to Golden Gate Park. I walked across the park. It's early in the morning. It's about seven, 7.30, eight in the morning. And I walked up that sort of rocky entrance to the George Washington, to, to, the, um, to the San Francisco, to the Golden Gate Bridge. And I walked across, I got to the middle of the bridge. It was very foggy. I could not see more than maybe three or four feet in front of me. And I heard a kind of a scratching sound to the left. And I looked over the the, 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 the rail and there was a kid who, I don't know what was going on with him, but he was agitated. He had long, stringy, blonde hair, and he looked like he was about to jump. And he reminded me of the, of the young man I'd seen in my dream. So I said to him, first off, I truly hope you're not planning to jump. And then he turned at me aggressively, and he was quoting Macbeth, and Life is Empty Nothingness, and all these things. And I said, you know you're really good with that. It sounds more realistic when you're out there about to jump than it did at Memorial Hall at St. Paul's School. And, and I said, listen, I'm here for a reason. I think it's possible that I came all the way across the country just to encounter you at this particular moment in this particular situation. And so he said, well, he, he actually had lots of expletives about that because he didn't believe any of it. And I said, well, let me tell you, so I told him about the dream. I told him about um, the argument with my folks. I told him about leaving the car with a note to the Pennsylvania State Police. He thought I was crazy at that point. And, and I said, but you're the one out there about the jump. And, and then I said, uh, you know, here I am. And I think based on a dream I had two years ago and 3,000 miles away, coast to coast, I think, I'm here for a reason, and I'm supposed to meet you. So he started cussing again, and, and, and I said, look, I'll make you an offer. If you come across the railing to the pedestrian, I was on the pedestrian walkway, and you stand here with me, I'm going to give you something that's going to change your luck forever. I'm going to give you a gajon Zone. <laughs> so he was kind of curious, and, and I told him a little bit about it. And, and he was calming down. He walked over the, the, the little railing area. And he stood by me. And I unscrolled my cajon zone. I explained as best I could a few of the symbols. And I said, look, you can have this. But here's a note. You have to go walk to my uh, walk through the park and take the bus. I gave him some little money. And you have to go to my cousin, George Lamont, who has a, a, house on Ch- a home on Channery Street. He was actually building superintendent. Um, And it said, dear George, this is Harry. Um, Please let him sleep on the floor or I was sleeping on the floor, bring him down to the temple, introduce him to some people and take care of him. And uh, so we shook hands. He walked uh, south uh, toward the park. I walked north toward uh, Oregon. And, And as we parted ways, I'm looking north. Suddenly all that mist and fog just dissipated. And it was this really bright luminary um, radiant uh, morning sky, blue and yellow. And I somehow felt intuitively that um, I was living out the dream. I didn't quite know what you two shall live meant until I got up to Reed College. I hitchhiked up to Reed. And uh, that January, I'm in the coffee shop uh, and I, 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 was not really a good executive thinker. So this guy came bounding into the coffee shop on a Friday night. His name was Andy. He he was lit up and he had a motorcycle jacket on. And he said, who wants to go for a ride on my brand new Harley Davidson shovel head? And I said, I do. So it's about nine at night, I went out into the parking lot. I got on this motorcycle and he took off. He went about, you know he hit 160 in Portland stop signs, traffic lights, shot through them. Then he goes south on the Pacific Coast Highway for an hour. He hit 180, it was raining, it was slushy. It doesn't get snowy, but it was slushy. And we were skidding all over the place. And I thought I was dead. I actually cried because I thought that was the end. And then he actually did this incredible U-turn over the midway. He went back to Portland with me screaming and he he yelling into 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 the rain. He dropped me off exactly where he, he picked me up. I staggered across uh, the ravine to Ackerman dormitory where I lived. And I never picked up the pay phone in that place. My parents could not get a hold of me, but I walked across the threshold and the phone rang. And I felt, I didn't see anything, but I just felt pushed toward the phone. And I, I just can't really explain it. It was an energy of some kind. So I picked up the phone and I said, hello. And it was my mother. She said, Oh, thank God you're alive. And she explained that she'd woken up. She's in New York. So she's 3,000 miles away. 3,000 miles away. And she's woken up and she's had a premonition that I was about to die or that I was dead. And I explained to her my experience on Andy's motorcycle. And I said, I thought I was dead too. And at that point, we connected for the first time in years because she was a bit of an Irish mystic. And so that's episode two. But the whole thing of, you know, if you save him, you too shall live at that moment in time, you know? And it's somewhat idiosyncratic. What I felt was that somehow by um, meeting uh, Harry on the bridge and helping Harry get off the ledge. And, and, and I did see him by the way, at Thanksgiving and he was with cousin George and then he went back to North Carolina where I guess he was from. Um, but somehow or another, uh, because of that, I had set up the conditions in this world of connectedness in one mind so that I didn't die on the motorcycle. And my mom, who was an abstract expressionist painter of some note in New York, um, Molly Post, she, uh, she painted a, a, pain, a painting called The Blue Angel Dream, which is actually in the book. And so the story, the book just goes on and on. It talks about different episodes of synchronicity. And so that's where I got to be very interested. I eventually quit a PhD program at UPenn in immunology And I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School where all Blue Angel dreamers need to end up. And I was able to study with Mersha Eliade. And even Joseph Campbell was there half the year. And I told them, I told the two of them in the swift kick dining room uh, about my my dream and about the car. And um, uh, uh, Mersha Eliade, who was very sort of, Eastern, he was very European, French. You could hardly understand what he said. He, he looked into his coffee, stirring it with his with, with his uh, with his little bit of, of uh, spoon, and he said, "Sounds like synchronicity <laughs> ah, <laughs> confirmation. and confirmation." And Joseph Campbell said, "Your car broke for a reason." So I'll leave it at that. That's how I got started.
2: There's the origin story. And I
0: can, yeah. I can so see- So you have to turn up your volume a bit.
2: My volume?
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, how's this? Good. Uh, I can see in your origin story, how you would come to the study of goodness, of doing good things, and of ethics and related things. Can you tell us in, briefly what the sort of bottom line findings you uh, have either done in your own research or others related research about doing good. It's good to be
1: good. <laughs> uh, even in very, very difficult environments, like the Stoics all understood, you know, uh, like uh, Victor Frankl understood in the prison camp. Uh, no matter what your circumstances, instead of descending into this negative spiral of bitterness and hatred and destructive emotions, um, you have it within you to connect with this uh, unlimited, infinite mind, infinite heart, infinite love, uh, which we all can possess and can 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 harvest in in challenging times, and. Um, you can manage to control what you can control. You can still live by the golden rule. Uh, I mean, I, I to this day, I get up every morning. I'm up by five o'clock, usually 4.30. I meditate for at least a half an hour. I pray. Um, I still go to an Episcopal church when I have a chance. And I envision the interactions of the day. And I have this wheel of love, which was the basis of why good things happen to good people, where love is... is um, you know, when the happiness and security of another is as real to use your own, you love that person. Harry Stack Sullivan created that definition and you, but it can be expressed in kindness and forgiveness and gratitude, in creativity and compassion and attentive mm-hmm. listening. So I'm, I, I go through a kind of rehearsal of all the people I know are in this book because I'm with people all the time in this busy medical center and, and I, I prep myself so that I stay, I stay centered, and I, I meditate a lot. I breathe a lot. Uh, I have this little one-minute me- <laughs> meditating thing. Uh, happy. I got from the Brahma kamores <laughs> at the UN, and uh, so I take little breaks, but I try to stay spiritually centered. I like the early morning because that's before the world's been roughed up by human nature at its worst. And you also have a sense of, well, I have a sense of being beyond, beyond time and place, you know, because I've come out of sleep, sleep, and I'm not oriented to the chronology of going from point A to point B, and I, I could be any place, honestly, I could be in Chicago, I could be in Cleveland, so, so, I like that period of the day, and I think that, you know, if it's if it's true that the Supreme Being in the in the, in the Hindu tradition exists before time and space and before the universe then um that would be the 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 way to connect that's just
0: something yeah yeah. let me ask you Stephen. uh you're the director founding director of the institute for research on unlimited love is unlimited love researchable and (laughs) if it is uh something that you can research what are the research tools that one would utilize i don't doubt uh, uh unlimited love and i could say that there are times spiritually, in meditation, you could have some clips yeah. of that, but how does one go about researching?
1: Well, when Sir John Templeton floated me an email in 2000, I was in my office at Case Medical School, and said, Stephen, we should start an institute to study the greatest human asset, unlimited love, and I faxed back, he didn't email, Sir John, what should we call this, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, he'd written a little book called Pure Unlimited Love, right. which is all about divide energy and love and healing. And uh, so I had a moment of trepidation because uh, I'm in a big medical school. And I said, well, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism. It's a little sciencey, a little drier. And he faxed back no unlimited love up to $8.9 million. And I faxed back Sir John. I love that language. It jumps right off the page. And so the Institute got started. But he kept kept faxing me and he would say, I don't want you to study mere human love, which he thought was kind of unwise, which he thought was myopic, which he thought was erratic uh, and so forth. Um, uh, He said, I want you to try to study the love that made humans, which was his way of saying the love underlying the universe, because he was really a believer in this uh, metaphysical scientific conversation. And uh, so I think that you know one of the things we did was we did a national survey of adult Americans and we asked them have you had an experience of divine love, and of course they define this differently, but um, uh, they eighty uh, percent of Americans had said at least one once, uh, about forty percent said um, more than once, twenty percent said often. And 10% said almost all the time. Mm. So we were surprised by that. And, and Matt Lee, who's now the director of empirical research on altruism at Harvard, and myself and Margaret Paloma, who wrote a book some years ago with uh, Gallup uh, when he was still alive on prayer. Uh, we did a book with Oxford called The Heart of Religion, which projects the, presents the results of this study, uh, which was really very compelling. And of course, then. When you had these experiences, you have them directly? Or or how did you have them? And most people, some people said maybe 30% said directly. They just felt some energy, it just invaded them. And the other the others said, well, it was through it was through someone else. It was per it was it was synchronicity, you know. It was it was that situation where just that incredible hardship is upon me and the perfect person at the perfect time, there they are. And and um, so, um, you know, uh, it, it was really quite impressive. And they all said that these experiences made them feel more compassionate.
0: If, if I could ask a follow-up, uh, the 10% that uh, had that experience often uh, or almost always, uh, what did, was there anything they had in common? You know, um,
1: not particularly. Uh, it, it didn't break down by gender. Um, it didn't have anything to do with their educational background.
0: They weren't all left-handed.
1: They weren't all left-handed. You know, these were people, they they were all 18 and older. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, we even interviewed, uh, um, we we actually interviewed about uh, maybe 80 individuals across the country who uh, said that they'd had great experiences. Do you know Auntie Annie, who does the pretzel stuff in the airports? Yes. Yeah, uh, she doesn't own that anymore. She's She's a Mennonite. Who lives out in Lancaster County? So we actually interviewed Auntie Annie, who uh, told the story. It's in the book about how um, you know her husband was broke and he was trying to set up a center for uh, young people in the Mennonite community who were having problems with mental health, and and she was so frustrated that he couldn't get any support. So she had a series of dreams, and she it, it, you know she, she testifies to this she dreamed the recipe for those <laughs> for those presents wow. and, and she made she made millions and millions of dollars and then she sold it to somebody and she gave all the money to her husband to build these and there are now like 14 uh centers for um mental well-being in in the uh, Mennonite and the Amish communities around Pennsylvania and mm-hmm. Ohio wow. so
2: <laughs> I have a a, a question uh probably a very old one, Um, there seems to be some kind of chicken-egg relationship between spiritual teachings and um, ethical behavior. You've studied spiritual uh, traditions. You've studied ethics uh, scientifically. Um, Some people say you have to teach people you have to give them ethical principles and guidelines. All religions do that. Uh, and if it worked, we would have a different world. And other people say ethical or moral behavior follows naturally from spiritual development. Uh, and if that were completely true, we would have no scandals in religious traditions of uh, authority figures misbehaving. How do you see the relationship between ethics or ethical behavior and uh, spiritual teachings?
1: Well, <clears throat> all of these traditions, without exception, as far as I'm aware, do teach the golden rule. Some idea of doing it unto others as you would have them do unto you. Of course, you can modify that like Oscar Wilde did, say do unto others as they would have you do unto them, which makes sense. (laughs) But but, you know, there is this, uh, this is Martin Buber's, you know, I, it, I relate to people as they contribute to my narrow little silly agendas or I, thou, Uh, I discover the other as other. But then in the Eastern traditions, uh, there's also I, I, a third option because I I am you in that sense. So when I jump off that subway platform and save that guy who'd had an epileptic seizure, you know, 15 years ago and fallen into a little ravine with the subway coming over, when you jump over that person, you can't explain this genetically, you can't explain it in any uh, developmental way other than to say that in this moment, an individual somehow had this unbelievable awareness of oneness, and uh, I mean, I've looked at all the E.O. Wilson stuff, and even David Sloan Wilson, all the evolutionary theories of altruism, and written books about them, and I know all these people, but I think in the end, um, it's it's the one mind, and it's our insight into its reality that um, oftentimes. Uh, helps us do things that are really quite remarkable. The guy who, uh, Gene Autry, the guy who jumped off that platform, had a five-year-old and a six-year-old daughter who he left there, which some people raise doubts about. Uh, but this was, and, and when they asked him why he did this, he was, uh, he was in the Navy. So he said, well, I was in the Navy and that's what we do. So it was a role altruism. But I think it was more than that, it was when they really talked with him, he said, just for some reason, I totally forgot myself. I didn't exist. I, I I didn't feel any pressure at all. I just I was going to jump, and I covered that man's body, and and it was a mystery to him. It was actually a mystery to him, and 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 so I you know I think that spirituality at its best um, uh, uh, teaches us about the one mind and the one heart uh, and uh, our participation in it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, human nature is not a pretty thing. Unconnected with this kind of inward dimensionality, uh, human nature can be very vile, as you know. All the people from Hobbes to Freud to Reinhold Niebuhr articulated. Um, uh, I mean, look at *The Lord of the Flies*. <laughs> you know, the one person who's out there meditating in the woods, Sam, is ultimately uh, killed and is and impaled. So um, I'm not naive about human nature, um, but human nature when connected, as Sir John always said, when connected with love that made humans.
0: That's, but ask, I mean, uh, those listening in might even me, might think I'm, I'm not, I don't always have that connection. Some people might say, I have never had that connection. I admire people who do. How do I make that connection? Is there, is there a path, is there a way? Yeah. Those are, Those are there is a way. And, and, and
1: that's why, you know, in the Upanishads, you know, you've got so much early on about the golden rule. So when I was a boy up in, up in New Hampshire, um, uh, Norman Rockwell had done that painting called The Golden Rule, that sort of iconic painting uh, where you've got the, the golden rule and gold do unto others. And then you've got um, all these people from every background, race, uh, gender, color, there they are. And they're all looking peacefully. uh, And they're meditating uh, on this idea of using your talents to help others. And, and then when Rockwell was talking about that image, which made it to the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, no, no relationship. uh, um, uh, You know, and this is like five years before the civil rights movement. I mean, it was really a very interesting way of injecting this into the culture. He said to us, we were just gathered around. I was like, I think I was, I was probably 13. He said, do you see the circle, the halo? And we looked and looked and looked, and finally we saw it. So there is a white circle that begins with the rabbi's beard up on top, if you look at the image, and then it goes to the right, there's the toddler's white shirt. Then you go down, you come up below, and there's a woman with a white shawl on. And he said, you know, I'm not religious. Uh, But he said, I think that when we try to live as best we can by the golden rule, we do no harm and we go beyond that minimalism and we try to really contribute and help others. He said, when we live that way best we can, he said, it's like surfing, (laughs) okay said, you have to paddle really hard with all of your energy to catch the wave. But at a certain point, all you have to do is balance. At a certain point, the wave has its own energy. You don't have to paddle anymore. You just have to ride the wave. And he said, that's what spirituality is. So, um, you know, there's a lot of distortion and a lot of um, vile, Greed and 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 uh, horrible reality to human nature, but I, I do think that to get there, as you know, as you mentioned, you know the the classic response, which I believe to this day is is the case, is that if we like we do our best, not, we won't be perfect. I'm into the spirituality of imperfection. Not that I'm an AA member, but I believe in that stuff. Um, <clears throat> um, you, you know. It, you do your best and you can ca- you can get closer to God through living by the golden rule. And however you want to call it, supreme being, ultimate reality, um, infinite energy, mystery, it doesn't matter to me. But when you do that, it, it kind of invades you and carries you. And, and I, I'm not going to read anything to you, but I, if you have one second. So I have a favorite poet. Um, and that is... Um, W.H. Auden, who was kind of a mystic hippie who hung around the Oxford Colleges and everybody flocked to him, you know. But this is just, it's just, you know, 10 lines, but it's amazing. This is what I'm talking about. One fine night in June, 1933, I was sitting on a lawn after dinner and three colleagues, two women and one man, we liked each other well enough, but were certainly not intimate friends nor had anyone a sexual interest in another. Incidentally, we had not drunk any alcohol we were talking casually about everyday matters when quite suddenly and unexpectedly, something happened. I felt myself invaded by a power which, though I consented to it, was irresistible and certainly not mine. For the first time in my life, I knew exactly, because thanks to the power I was doing it, what it means to love one's neighbor as oneself. I was also certain though the conversation continued to be perfectly ordinary, that my three colleagues were having the same experience. In the case of one of them, I was able later to confirm this. My personal feelings toward them were unchanged. They were still colleagues, not intimate friends. But I felt their existence as themselves to be of infinite value and rejoiced in it. Wow. Where to find that quote? Exactly. That is in a book called The Protestant Mystics, which was, you can get it secondhand on Amazon. It goes back about 35 years. And, and it, it's, it has a foreword by W.H. Auden where he quotes this experience he had.
2: Wow.
1: And, 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 and so, that, so, I mean, I was, I was sitting here in my office like five years ago, and there was a Korean American student from uh, Queens. She was about to drop out of medical school. She was really struggling. She couldn't acculturate well. And, um, and she just came to my, she showed up at my door. And, and I, I said, I asked her her name and she said she was really wanting to talk with me. And I said, look, I can't do it now because I've got all these meetings lined up, but um, email me and we can get together in a couple of days. But then I, something just right in this room, right at this desk, okay, I'm here. And suddenly I, I feel this energy. Over my right shoulder. I looked I actually looked around. I spun around because I couldn't believe it. And there was nothing there. It was like what happened at Reed College in the threat you know, the common room. There was nothing there, and I wasn't seeing anything, I wasn't hallucinating, but I just felt this energy. And and I knew at that moment that I had to drop everything. Drop everything, all my appointments, cancel them all. And I spent the next three hours talking to her. I became her mentor. Uh, she took a year off. She wrote on her own spirituality and medicine and professionalism uh, under my guidance. And she came back to medical school. She's now practicing very successfully and has a beautiful family. And, you know, um, I mean, God knows she, she had no money at all. She, was, she came from an absolute impoverished family. Her, her Korean um, mother was a, was a nanny somewhere in, in, in Manhasset and she'd take the bus out from, from uh, 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 Bay Ridge but you know, um, if I hadn't stopped and really given her my attention, who knows what would have happened to her? So, so that was the kind of thing that I can't explain it. But I, and it doesn't happen every day. Okay, it doesn't. It's not like constant. But every once in a while, I will have an experience
2: like that. Stephen, before we go, we only have a couple of minutes. Give
0: us. Yeah, I actually would suggest, Phil, so we do a part two there's no, a lot of other things do. i certainly would like to get we into part too. what's that
2: but we promised we'd mention his forthcoming book which has to do okay. with right. Alzheimer's so in 30 seconds stephen tell us about it
0: and, yes, and so. i would like to do a follow-up interview uh, uh, just specifically on that
2: yeah yes yes i'd love to do it with you, you
1: guys are great <laughs> fabulous well you know in 30 seconds so i call it's called dignity for deeply forgetful people and I've been working with the deeply forgetful for a long time. I don't call them demented because that's a purely negative term, a decline from a former mental state. Deeply forgetful is more mystical, you know, that you don't know what's going on underneath that silence or underneath that communicative breakdown. Maybe they've gone down to 30th Street Station and they got one foot already up on that train bound for glory, to quote Woody Guthrie. So we just don't know. And it's all about experiences of, Um, paradoxical lucidity, which is now being studied in the literature on Alzheimer's, where people who have just been sort of gone, empty husks, suddenly they have these moments where they're more aware of themselves, oftentimes precipitated by personalized music. There's a great website called Music in Memory, the Dan Cohen down the road in Mineola, we've written things together, uh, put together. So, uh, uh, you know, this is, it's really important to realize that these people who are deeply forgetful they're not that different than we are. You know, they're part of the human, and, and, and they have consciousness. It's not their linear rationality, which is the, what the Western philosophers emphasize that gives them moral status. It's the fact that they have consciousness. They can still see the sun. They can feel the wind. They can, they can smell the chicken, you know? I mean, it, you know, they, 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 they can be creative. They can be marvelously creative. So it's a book about, about broadening our approach to what makes us respect and give dignity to human life. Namaste. I honor the divine in you, you honor the divine in me. It's not Kant, it's not Locke, it's not, well, if you can't put out uh, rational plans into the future and operationalize them, you don't count, we can send you to a
2: gas chamber, right? It's not that, it's much deeper. Thank you for that. Excellent. I'm sure everybody who has people uh, in their families suffering from what we call dementia or from Alzheimer's will will value that. And when the book comes out, we'll have you back on the program. It will be an honor. I,
0: I want to throw one thing out for our uh, listeners and viewers. When you mentioned the, the experience you had where the man was thinking of jumping off the uh, uh, Golden Gate Bridge, I, I don't know if it was on NPR or if I read it, but within the last year, I heard this story of a, of a. They were interviewing people who had actually jumped off the bridge, attempting to commit suicide, but actually lived. And virtually every case, people, as soon as they jumped, they thought, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But uh, one guy, he said, he, on his way to the bridge, he said, if even one person had said one word to him, hello, how are you, anything, he wouldn't have done it. So it's made, <laughs> it, it affected me in a big way when I heard that. So
1: I believe in gentle curiosity. I actually teach that to the medical students. Just ask your patients, how are they doing?
2: Yeah.
1: What's going on at home? Just this is not empathy. This is not the complexity of empathic interaction. This is just, you know, telling somebody that you care enough about them to ask how they're doing and oftentimes that will make a big difference. So that's what you're talking about. And and I guess with with Harry on the bridge, I mean, the fact that I stopped and I looked at him and I just said, I truly hope you don't plan to jump. I
2: think that was <laughs> it. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you for all the good work you're doing on goodness, and I, uh, we hope to have you back soon. And everybody, uh, you can Google Stephen G. Post, Stephen with a PH, and find a tremendous uh, number of articles, videos, and so forth and uh, continue learning from him. I learned from you. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much. It's been an honor.